0: Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, episode 11, Darren and Elora. Today I'm talking with Darren. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are outside of D&D. So my name's
1: Darren. I'm a 33-year-old software engineer from Massachusetts. And um, I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. And, um, you know, I I, kind of have a new hobby every year or so. Uh, most recently, I got into leather working a little over a year ago, and um cool. I actually just recently entered a co- costume contest to try to win a trip to Germany for a larp one of the world's largest larp events. So that um, that's I'm kind of stretching myself thin with all of the the projects that I'm gonna be working on. So I imagine I'm gonna be. Having a pretty hectic holiday, but I'm really en- enjoying it. And um, that's really neat. Yeah, so I've been playing D and D for about twelve years now, off and on. And um, I started <laughs> I unfortunately started with you know arguably the worst edition, fourth edition, and I know there's a lot of debate about that, but I wasn't really a fan of you know some of the. It, it kind of just felt like an MMO, and. I think that's one of the most common criticisms. Yes,
0: there are definitely aspects of that.
1: And since then, I've played AD&D, Pathfinder, and a couple of short games in other systems. And uh, now, you know, it finally settled on 5th edition. And I've DM'd, you know, a couple campaigns before, uh, my current one, in college. And they're, they're kind of just terrible. Uh, my first game was based in Forgotten Realms in a city called Daggerford along the Sword Coast. And it was it was a mess, you know, there was no real cohesive story. It was mostly just me putting together weird little dungeons and filling them with as many puzzles and traps as I could think of. And yeah. You know, I was letting the players get away with all kinds of nonsense, as I imagine most um, games do with a first time DM. And after that, I had a yeah. campaign based in Ravenloft where the players started at level zero and had to earn their way to their preferred class by doing tasks that, you know, like a commoner might need to do to work their way towards the, their preferred class. And I'd award them ability score increases based on their actions. It wasn't as bad, but, you know, it, it's still a lot of work that needed to be done there.
0: Yeah, I've tried that before, and it, it did feel like it's a lot of extra stuff you have to do and my impression was there's not very much like actual benefit
1: yeah I mean it was still interesting the level 0 campaign but I feel like um, a lot of the suggestion, suggested mechanics that people use it, it just ends up being a bit of a grind mm-hmm. and um, my current campaign is the first one I've done where I feel like I'm doing a decent job but you know I still get a lot to learn and I think most of the reason I've been doing better is that I did a lot of prep work before even starting the campaign. Like I started doing the world building for Alora about a year before I put out feelers for players for starting the campaign. Okay. And so now the campaign just started a little over a year ago and uh, we've lost some players, gained some players and it's been a little bit chaotic in the last few months so I'm hoping that
0: it'll stabilize a bit. So this is just one campaign, right? You're not running, like, more than one?
1: No, it's just one long campaign, and, you know, that's kind of my fear is that I'll lose all of the original players, and then it's like, well, nobody knows the original story, so what am I doing?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could still use the world, but, uh, yeah, it does become difficult when something like that happens.
1: Yeah, because, you know, I find if I don't prepare the entire story, I just end up not... I'm still learning how to improv, and when I'm put in a position where I kind of have to do that stuff on my feet, uh, I just tend to get very flustered, so I try to prepare as much as I can ahead of time. So, to be honest, I've already planned out the entire story of the entire campaign, and I'm just kind of, you know, adjusting things as we go along.
0: And you don't want to do, like, just a a Monster of the Week-style campaign?
1: No, I I mean, I, I don't mind doing something like that. Just, I do want to tell, you know, an overall story, uh, like actually have a narrative to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, you know, every once in a while, if I run out of ideas for the week and can't think of a good way to move on to the next big plot point, I will do something like that where I just send them on a, a you know, like a, a dungeon crawl Which is kind of kind of what they're doing right now, although it is tangentially related to the story.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to to get yourself some space. I used to use random encounters for that, and um, a dungeon crawl can have a little more uh, depth to it than a random encounter.
1: Yeah, and I do enjoy putting together dungeons. Just I feel like at least with the groups that I've dealt with. Um. Traps and puzzles never seem to go as well as I had hoped. You know, I find that most puzzles people don't really want to you know stop and solve them. The players that I've had tend to k- kind of just brute force them, and mm-hmm. so you know i I tend to use less puzzles now, but uh, traps are always fun to design,
0: yeah, puzzles um my group. We, I used to do more of them, and then uh, uh, it turned into something where my group just doesn't like doing them very much. Um, and then I realized that one way to to get around that is to have the puzzle be optional um, and something they can work on, like, outside of game time. Yeah. So I can just hand it to them and be like, hey, you, like, you know, if you solve this puzzle, then you get the item that's in this, like, hidden treasure chest, and you can have them sort of retroactively get the item if they come up with the solution outside yeah. of the game. So yeah, making them asynchronous helped. And it also means that like you don't have to waste time during a session so for the like one person that likes the puzzle um, compared to the, the people that don't. And making it be just like an extra treasure piece instead of something that's necessary definitely also helped with that.
1: Yeah. But traps are always fun to design, especially when you're playing in a group where the one rogue tends to set them all off. Oh, that's yeah, one of the very first dungeons that I threw at my current group, the rogue just, you know, was charging down the hallway like everyone else and fell face first into a, a spike pit. And then uh down further further along in the dungeon did it again and fell face first into another spike pit. Brilliant. Yeah, so that was pretty satisfying. And, uh, you know, I've got a running list of all of the most ridiculous quotes from the campaign. And so it's not a very long one, but there there have been a couple of moments where, out of context, you you would hear this and you'd just be like, what?
0: I mean, at early levels, the yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> you send the rogue to check for traps and their perception isn't good enough, so they just fall into a hole. Yeah. I actually liked how fourth edition handled traps where they had it as a sort of an active, almost like a monster in an encounter. Yeah. For some of them.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time since I played fourth edition, so I don't really remember a lot about the actual mechanics behind it. I I mostly just remember the combat mechanics, you know, with the at will encounter and daily powers. And I, I did like that they had um a lot more character options than fifth edition has uh you know a lot of them were kind of silly i think but there was as much as it was a pain to have to continually buy new supplements it was nice that they had so many character options
0: yes yes they 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 do want to always have you be buying supplements and fifth edition i guess is a bit better than than fourth edition was
1: yeah, 5th edition has got more polish, just less content.
0: Yeah. But
1: I guess that's a good thing. Although, you know, yeah, I've heard a lot of debate over the last few supplements that they've released, like Spelljammer, and it makes me worried for the Dragonlance setting that they're releasing.
0: I don't think D20 systems are necessarily the best ones for doing ship-to-ship combat. Yeah. Um. I remember how it worked in the the Star Wars D20 game, and it was it was kind of awful. It was much more dependent on the ship that you had than how the pilot that was in the ship. So just like a, an X-wing is going to be a Tie Fighter, it doesn't matter who's piloting it. It's just so much of a better ship that doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I really haven't played very many uh, tabletop games besides you know D and D, and the the one tabletop game that I did play that was at least you know different from D was Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. And I only played one very short campaign in that setting. But you know I've played a couple of the games that are on Steam and I really like the setting, but I I haven't really always been a fan of mixing technology and magic because I don't know, at, at least in the instances I've seen it done, I'm usually not a fan of how it's done. And it's funny that I say that, considering that in my world, I literally did exactly that. It's just I haven't spent a whole lot of time fleshing it out. And I guess part of it is that I'm worried that I'm going to do it just as badly as i seen as I think everyone else has done it.
0: Mm. That That is largely what Shadowrun is, is tech and magic. Yeah. And also just sort of interesting idiosyncrasies, you know, like having a, a troll that's in like a biker gang or something. Yeah. I always thought that was like a cool image for that kind of stuff. Right, the spelljammer setting. I was thinking, I hadn't heard anything else bad about it besides the the ship combat. Everything else seemed that it's such a huge setting. It's hard to actually give more material to it.
1: Yeah, it was mostly the ship combat, but also you know just a lot of people complaining that the entire through all three books, it just kept, kind of felt like a nothing burger. Like there wasn't really any substance to it.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. then
1: there was that whole controversy about the Hadozi. Oh yeah, but yeah. The the D and D subreddits are are a little bit of a chaotic place, so I tend to just ignore most of what I read there.
0: Yeah, I also feel like it. It's just the type of environment where negative attention is going to get more views. Um, yeah, not necessarily, but you know that is typically how those kind of things work. Yeah. I think they're, they're. Do you watch. Um, do you play Magic the Gathering?
1: I used to. I don't really anymore. I have a gigantic box of cards sitting in my closet that I really want to get rid of, but the local gaming shop doesn't seem to be interested in replying to the email that I sent like a year ago asking for a quote on the cards. That I have. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: Uh, the reason I bring it up is just this one um, guy on YouTube, MTG Remy, that does reviews for each of the new sets that's coming out. Where yeah. he talks about like his favorite card, and then after he's talked about his favorite card, he has a little segment in the same video where he talks he talks about how negative content drives views. Uh, so then he's going to talk about his least favorite like random thing, like his least favorite food or his least favorite pet. Um, it's it's a funny little segment, and I thought it was like a cute way of like describing the strangeness of releasing content on the internet. Where having it be hated is almost better. <laughs> well, we kind of bounced around a little bit there. I think we skipped over one of the usual questions. How did you um start being a DM?
1: So I you know, I have played a lot as a player, but early on in DD I found that I got distracted a lot, and part of that is the ADHD, but I you know I found it really difficult to focus as a player if I wasn't constantly the focus of attention and I know that sounds terrible because you know there are so many players who have that main character syndrome but it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be you know the main character so much as when the DM wasn't focused specifically on me you know I kind of would just tune out and as a DM I can't do that I have to always be paying attention and so it helps me to be more a part of the game
0: when i'm the one in control i i feel the same way um so no I, I totally get that
1: i mean i still do enjoy playing i'm also in a game with my best friend and a few friends from college right now and uh i actually wrote probably my best character backstory yet
0: yeah what was the backstory
1: so i'm playing a probably an unpopular uh, character choice and that I'm playing a divination wizard. And his backstory was that he was from a small village where he was acting as sort of like a fortune teller almost. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what he was doing was just cold reading, but he was, he was a devout follower of the God Savras, the God of fate. And one day he received a vision from Savras, or who he believed to be Savras, telling him that you know some great calamity would befall the village. and he he was told of a way that he could bless the townsfolk to you know give them protection against this calamity or disease or whatever. And then all of a sudden the disease breaks out and the town starts getting completely wiped out by this disease. And so he finds out that the vision came not from Savras, but Talona, the god of poison and disease. And so he kind of got driven out of the town and nearly killed by the townsfolk. And um, he's kind of been on the run. He got as far away from his hometown as possible, and he developed a drinking problem because of the guilt of, you know, what he had done, and now he's kind of been, like, bar hopping, looking for a distraction to kind of just try to cope with everything that's happened, and so he came across the party and decided to join them because he was looking for purpose, and um, what's funny is actually recently in one of our recent downtime sessions... He went and tested some magical bread by a local baker, and he did it so many times. um, Every time he would eat a piece of the bread, she would roll on the um, wild magic table. And I eventually not only had blue skin and a feather beard, but I also cannot get drunk for the next twenty-four days. (laughs) So, for a you know alcoholic divination wizard, that's not a great combination
0: Just oh, you know how long it's gonna last yeah but
1: uh yeah i've in the past all of my characters have been a little dull so i'm glad that i put the time into developing a story that was you know on the one hand it's you know the classic tragic backstory but on the other hand it's more detailed than i imagine most tragic backstories are
0: yeah i actually like it and it um it's also a backstory that's good for use as a DM because it's not something that is going to be brought in necessarily for that character, so you can bring it in at a time that feels relevant to you as a DM or or not, you know?
1: Yeah, and I totally didn't take any inspiration for his backstory from Neverwinter Nights.
0: <laughs> I haven't actually played that game, so I'm not sure what you're talking about there. Actually,
1: but... uh, my favorite game of all time. I actually have a tattoo from the game's box cover art on my arm.
0: Oh, cool. Uh, You want to start talking about your campaign world? What did you say the name was again?
1: So the name of the world is ALORA.
0: Right. Um, So why don't you give us like a physical description for the world first? So it's... I don't want to say
1: Earth-like, but, um, you know, based on the map that I showed you, it is... Got a lot it shares a lot of similar features to Earth. It doesn't have the you know polar ice caps, but it shares a lot of the same kinds of biomes, and it's roughly the same size. But um one of the more unique aspects of the world is that it's one of the oldest one of the only worlds in the entire universe. There's four planets circling the sun in this system. And those are the only four planets in existence. Beyond that right. is nothing but an endless void. And on this planet, Aelora, there are seven what are called wellsprings. And these wellsprings are almost like magic volcanoes. And they are conduits for the, pow- the power of the seven goddesses in the setting, known as the Seven Sisters. Okay. Basically these are like waypoints where the sisters where where they were when they created the world and you know it there it's kind of like a conduit directly to their power and occasionally they will gather up energy and erupt and cause magical anomalies or you know devastation in the world
0: fountains or volcanoes or something
1: yeah, so it's almost like a volcano in that when it erupts, you see like a large column of energy shooting into the sky, and okay. you know whole, anything can happen. It's it's basically like wild surge in volcano form.
0: Okay, but it's it's is it an actual volcano or can it be something else like a fountain or a, a really big tree or?
1: Yeah, they look like volcanoes. They have a you know caldera, and. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's the correct term, you know, I haven't done a whole lot of research on actual geology for doing. Yeah. Caldera, the, era, the,
0: the crater in a mountain that forms a volcano. Yeah. that Yeah.
1: It. So um, beyond that, there are four main continents. There, uh, there is the continent which the players are on right now called Iraq, which is the largest continent in the world. Okay. And it's, very large, it's kind of like in the shape of a sea, and like there's a large gulf, like right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then there's a desert far to the south and a snowy biome far to the north. And then in between that is a lot of mountainous regions and foothills and highlands. And then there's the continent of Meer, which is the second largest continent. And due to a wellspring eruption, near is constantly in a state of spring. It never, it's always like a perfect temperature there. It doesn't really fluctuate.
0: That's kind of cool. How does that work for growing food?
1: Um, hadn't really put any thought into that yet, but I'm sure that there's going to be some world building to do there, but I'm assuming, you know, it would limit what crops are available there, but um, But it'd be like a
0: constant growing scene, uh, season for whatever would work in spring
1: yeah so they'd probably be pretty prosperous in terms of you know there wouldn't be really any food scarcity there
0: i wonder how that would work for animals because there's a lot of animals that have like a a breeding mating season that's triggered by spring
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so i'm sure the animals that live on that continent would get used to it but if you like bring one from a different continent that's used to seasonings it would probably freak out a little bit
1: Yeah, it's definitely something I'll have to put some thought into. These are the things that I like talking about because, you know, I wasn't, when I started doing the world building, I had no idea where to start. You know, I pretty much just started with the Pantheon and I drew a map and started plotting points and then I started thinking of, you know, I knew I wanted to do the Wellsprings from the start. That was kind of one of the most unique things I wanted to add to the world. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I just, you know, all the political intrigue and history that's where i struggle to think of what to add and then you know topics like this where we're talking about the ecology and the all all of the animal life those are definitely things that i didn't really consider so i'm definitely going to have to put some time eventually into thinking about how all these changes that i made to the you know kind of climate would affect those things and so that's one of the reasons that I was really excited to come talk about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to have someone to bounce ideas off of, and you never have to actually come up with answers for these. If you don't want to, you can just say, "Oh, it works because of magic," and not worry about it. Um, or just, you know, if your players are on Arak and they're not on Mirror and they're not asking questions about Mirror, then you don't need to have answers.
1: <laughs> so that that's one thing is that. So there is the main campaign that takes place on a rock, but in between each uh, quote-unquote chapter of the campaign, I uh-huh. take a break and we t- we go off into a little side story uh, where they started off on another planet playing uh, all Dragonborn and Lizardfolk characters and, and kobolds because there's a separate world. I wasn't really going to talk about that world because, you know, the focus is on Laura. But... Um, Basically there's this side story where they're playing these characters and they ended up on Mir. So we have a little side story going on in Mir, but we've only played two sessions in in that, you know, this little side story. So we haven't really I haven't really done a whole lot of world building over there yet.
0: That sounds like a pretty cool like campaign structure where you have uh in between like big adventure arcs, you have a little like I want to, I don't want to say quite a one-shot, because you said two in that section, but... Well, it's uh, funny you should say as, that, because that's exactly
1: what I've been calling them. I've been calling them one-shots.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, doing that as a way to still be in-universe, and maybe even in the, the same timeline for what you're doing, is it's nice. It's a way to explore the world a little bit. I like that.
1: Yeah. And so, then there is the next biggest continent of Gother. And so this one also hasn't had much development other than um, what I call the Spellscar Crusade. So there was about you know hundred years ago there was a wellspring eruption which devastated this continent, Gothar, and mm-hmm. it kind of turned half of the continent into this just kind of scorched barren wasteland. And there was already a problem with orcs there who. You know, they weren't really that aggressive at the time, but the eruption mutated them into what I call fell orcs. And basically they just breed at a much faster rate and they are incredibly aggressive, incredibly strong. And so the Spellscar Crusade formed to kind of bring adventurers from all over the world to come help fight these things because they keep reproducing at such a fast rate. That they're just, you know, slowly encroaching upon the capital city.
0: Got orcs on steroids.
1: Yeah, basically. Which is horrifying to think about, but. Yeah. And then finally, there is Reshik, which is a snowy continent, and it's the home of the Dwarven civilization. And only the dwarves, because there is only one city on the entirety of the continent that outsiders are allowed to come visit, which is the city of Greentide. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, where the merchants come to do business with the dwarves. But short of that one city, you cannot go anywhere else on the continent. And if you try, they will kill you.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so like uh, feudal Japan. Yeah,
1: and... The Part of the reason of that is because the dwarves are hyper-advanced technology-wise. Um, I wouldn't, you know, not to the point that they are like us, but they've kind of fused the magic and technology. They've used, they've harnessed the power of the Wellsprings to fuel their technology. And so a lot of the artificers in the world are dwarves who come from Reshik. That's cool. Yeah.
0: So, like, taking a little bit of the Wellspring energy... When it erupts or in between eruptions?
1: Oh, they can they can gather latent energy while, before it erupts. And they can even mitigate eruptions by draining energy from it. But So they use it to fuel a lot of their inventions. Like some of the inventions that I've said that they would have are zeppelins and, you know, kind of more modern weapons like guns. Mm-hmm. And so those are the four main continents. And so, one of the more unique features of Elora is that there's only seven playable races. So, I there are a lot of fantasy races that I just plain don't like narratively. Um, and I (laughs) kind of cut it down to to, just your favorites. Well, not even necessarily just my favorites because there are a couple in the world who I ended up not really liking, but I. I thought it would be interesting to have a setting where each of the goddesses, each of the Seven Sisters, created one of their own races. And I decided each goddess, the race that they created, would be in some way um, take on an aspect of their domain. So that leads me to the the Seven Sisters. So there is they, they were all created by magic itself. And magic is kind of the driving force of the entire universe, all of existence. Right. And each of them represents some, uh, you know, some arbitrary aspect or thought. And they have their own domain. So there is Astix, the god of the sun, who literally embodies the sun. And there are, uh, there's the goddess... Of Elora, her name is Elor. And there's the goddesses of life and death, Lys and Astrea. And then there's the goddesses of the three moons that circle Elora, which are known as Quen, Umos, and Lakaris. And so they each have their own domains. And so Astix, the god of the sun, she represents order and justice and. You know, basically, she's like the paladin god, if you were to think of it that way. And she created the Asimar race. And so they are kind of like her law bringers and, you know, peacekeepers. And there's a specific sect of Asimar known as the Sentinels that um, they protect Elora from um, cosmic threats. Because one of uh, one of the other features of the world is that there are no demons or devils. Instead, they've kind of been replaced with cosmic cosmic threats.
0: I'm thinking like Cthulhu monsters, because that's usually what star means in D and
1: D. So, not necessarily Lovecraftian, more like shadow uh, void creatures. Okay, you know, because there's that endless void outside of the oh right yeah
0: you don't have stars okay
1: yeah so there is there there are other gods in the pantheon but no none of the mortals know about them and one of the other gods is named emir and he created these shadow creatures because he is the god of the void and he was the very first god he came before everyone else and so he when the Seven Sisters came into being, they started creating things, and you know they're kind of encroaching on his domain, so he gets really mad at them and starts creating these shadow creatures to a- attack their creation. And so, Astix created the Sentinels to protect Elora from the few that managed to slip past the Seven Sisters' defenses.
0: And the Sentinels are the, the paladin order you were talking about?
1: Yeah, paladins, clerics,
0: yeah. All right, and that makes sense.
1: She also has another order called the Truth Seekers, which they're basically like magical lawmen, where they're clerics who can cast Zone of Truth, so they're going to get the truth out of you one way or another.
0: Ooh, all right. Yeah, and so um, then, I had a question about the the cosmic monsters. Um, yeah, are sure. they? you said they're just shadow creatures or are they are they yeah so i call them demons or yeah how does that work
1: so i call them void spawn and they're i i haven't really given form to a lot of them yet only a couple of them have actually made appearances in the campaign so far Mm -hmm. but to give you an example the first one that appeared was kind of like a pure shadow version of a beholder or a death tyrant okay and so, that that was uh, wiping the floor with the party, especially because one of the nice features of the void spawn is that they cannot be killed by normal means. Um, you know, once they hit zero HP, they don't die. The only way to kill them is with radiant, you know, radiant damage. And so, you basically have to have a cleric or someone who is capable of dealing divine damage to them.
0: Have you? I'm not sure Nightshades are in 5th edition. Um, a cool monster for that. Maybe.
1: Yeah, I I still need to take a real deep delve into the monster manuals because there are so many monsters, I'm sure, that I have no idea about.
0: Well, the, the Nightshades were a thing in 3rd edition. I'm not sure they were in any other edition um, uh, right. where they were this really powerful uh, shadow creature. Um there are three different kinds. There was like a human kind, there was a bat kind, and there was a a worm kind.
1: Yeah, it's not ringing a bell.
0: Yeah, um, I'm finding some stats for them on D D Wiki, so I'll take that for what it is. Yeah. Um.
1: So, getting back to the goddesses. Yeah. So yeah, then there was Alor who created the dwarves, and that's because she, you know her domain is magic and knowledge. And creation, and the dwarves were the very first race on Elora. Haven't done a whole lot of extensive writing about their history, but I'm going to be doing some, you know, in the coming weeks because the players are currently investing in catacombs of a very ancient dwarven civilization. So more to I mean, come. These are
0: the the isolationist ones living on the Snow Continent, right?
1: Yeah, and the thing is the you know, catacombs that they found are on a rock under a mountain. So, a little bit of explaining to do there.
0: On a rock under a mountain? Yeah. What do you mean, on a rock?
1: No, on a rock, the, the continent. Oh, oh, so, so, I heard yeah, you wrong. <laughs> that's one, of the, one of the problems with naming the continent a rock is that it can be a little difficult to pronounce.
0: All right, all right, yes, that. Now I got gotcha. you. Okay, so it's... It's interesting because it's not on um, Reshik, was the name of the other one, right? Yeah.
1: Okay. And so uh, the next would be the Tabaxi created by Quinn. And she is, you know, the goddess of the ocean and the forest and nature. And um, she's, you know, depicted as a panther goddess, almost like Boston. And that's why on Iraq, right in kind of the middle of the continent, right where the players are right now, there's a large forest called the Bossed Wilds.
0: Oh, okay. So you're you're using the the cat god name. Yeah.
1: And then uh, Umos is the goddess who created the halflings. And she's the goddess of trickery, deceit, community, and uh, shadows, basically. So not trying to portray the halflings as deceitful, her domain is more focused on that community aspect. So Halflings are very a very tight-knit community-driven race.
0: Okay, so kind of two sides of the same coin you have, like community and like cheaters and tricksters as part of the like shadow side of that. Yeah. Okay. No, that and makes then- sense.
1: There is Lakaris, who is the goddess who created the humans. She is the goddess the goddess of love, beauty, and sex and that kind of thing. Okay. And the humans are one of the races who I have had to put the most development into because kind of the whole point of the campaign centers around an event that happened a few centuries ago known as the Grave Rot Plague, which It was this great plague that kind of spread very rapidly throughout the entire world and wiped out about 90% of the human population. And they have struggled to recover ever since then.
0: It's a pretty deadly plague.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons they've struggled so much is because due to some misunderstandings when the plague first broke out, um, the elves who were created by the goddess Lise. You know, elves don't have the best reputation in fantasy, and they assumed that this plague was brought by the humans, or, you know, the humans were... They didn't realize that this plague targeted humans specifically. It could not spread to the other races. Ah. And so they kind of tried to quarantine the humans, And this caused a bunch of riots, which led to a lot of deaths. And so it's created a lot of racial tension between them. And so the humans are kind of in a lower class position at the moment. And they're in the campaign. They're currently fighting to try to put the humans in a better position. And um, they are, you know, they've finally reached a, a, you know, a better position in the town that the players are currently in because they installed a one of the human community leaders as the mayor or, or magistrate. And so the, the the whole campaign um it kind of all revolves around that event the grave rot plague. Then there's Lise who I said created the elves. She is the goddess of life and you know the elves you know and traditionally in Fantasy, they're very long lived. And in this case, they are also very long lived. They live for about 3,000 years as opposed to the like 7, 800 that they do in Forgotten Realms.
0: Yeah, 3,000 is more in line with what Tolkien had, I think.
1: Yeah. And so the thing is, due to some recent fallout in my campaign, because of all that, you know, elven racial tension and their actions during the campaign, you know, they've committed a lot of atrocities and. Not too long ago in the campaign, there was a wellspring eruption, and um, so one of the things that I forgot to mention is that none of the races of Elora can interbreed, so the, you know you don't have like half elves, half orcs, or anything like that. And this wellspring eruption gave humans and elves the ability to interbreed, so you know you started seeing half elves pop up. And the elves are scratching their heads going, wait, what's going on here? And they got really you know, mad at the fact that they, they felt like this was some kind of human witchery or whatever. And they kind of, in the town that the players are in, they started an inquisition where they started hunting the parents of these children and started trying to round up and execute the children. And so... It has been a bit of a dark theme in the campaign for a long time, and eventually it's going to get a little bit lighter, but at the end it's going to kind of take a more dark tone again. And so, you know, it gave humans and elves the ability to interbreed, and so we're just starting to see half-elf children born, and... I was, I, I'm was. debating giving all the different races, you know, slightly different names to kind of differentiate them from the D&D folklore, but mm. still working on that. And then finally, there is the goddess of death, Estrella, who created the um, Goliath race. And this was, Estrella was the one that I had the most trouble coming up with a race to kind of represent her domain Uh and so even though goliaths they don't really give off the they don't really represent death and decay and and disease and that kind of thing she also represents entropy but the the way that i kind of fit them in there is that the goliaths are cannibals I, it, it was kind of a weak link, and I'll admit that I you know I kind of went back and forth on that for a long time, but I couldn't really think of a race different enough from the races that were already in the setting that fit that domain well. Okay. And, you know, I debated making it something like Shatter Kai, but I, there was just too many intricacies of the, especially since Shatter Kai aren't in 5th edition but I didn't want any of the races to be too similar to one another. So the Goliaths, um, they are cannibals, but not like they go around just killing people and eating them. Um, they see it as a way of honoring their dead. So rather than funerals, they will cannibalize their own. Okay. You know, they kind of see it as a way of respecting the fallen, and you know they see it as a way of preserving the power of their ancestors because they right. believe that they passed their power on to their their descendants
0: yep yeah there's plenty of i think there's a few real world cultures that do that
1: and so yeah like one of the cultural beliefs is that you know if you have this big hulking strong goliath who's stronger than everyone else then he probably had some really strong ancestors
0: that he ate yeah <laughs> okay um i mean obviously too late to do this but did you consider doing like dampier as one of your the death races
1: uh i probably could have but you know one of the aspects uh that Estrella embodies is that she despises undead
0: oh okay then yeah that would not work. so
1: yeah that couldn't really work but you know, it, it's it's not perfect, but, I mean, not everything in the world is going to be.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Goliath seems like a good choice because they're kind of pale, like a, like a dead person.
1: Yeah. And I decided not to go with the traditional D&D portrayal where they kind of have, like, the pale skin with the black stripes or whatever, kind of making them look like zebras. Instead, they're just kind of pale skin and they have kind of, like... Kind of almost think of them like the engineers from uh, Prometheus.
0: Okay. I thought those were tattoos that they had in the the usual art.
1: Uh, Maybe. That was just the first thing that came to mind when I thought about Goliaths. Yeah, so the human population is pretty sparse throughout the world except on Mir. Mir is their homeland, and there is just one empire there that spans almost the entire continent that... Uh, is completely run by humans. You know, there's still some elves and halflings on the continent that are intermingled in their society, but it's mostly humans. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like their... where they, they, you know, they needed to have their own foothold somewhere so that they could repopulate and be strong together. And um, so Mir is... Besides Rushik, um, Mir is actually the strongest military in the world. They actually rival Reshik despite their technology, because they have access to an exotic metal, and the exotic metal basically is highly resistant to magic. Oh, okay. And they they kind of have like a almost like a a Spartan uh, culture.
0: The whole continent does.
1: Just that empire, yeah, because oh, okay. there is a small sliver of the continent, the, the little desert area, which is inhabited by the halflings. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But um, the Rathmore Empire, as it's called on Mir, you know, they have kind of a Spartan culture, and whereas on Iraq, uh, it's kind of a democratic situation where there's several different regions of Iraq that are all kind of governed by local magistrates so it it's more of a kind of modern idea where Mm -hmm. um you know they're elected officials yeah
0: or is their federal governing body
1: yeah that would be and so so moving on um besides just like the placement of the different races um magic is kind of heavily woven into everything about the world because, you know, everything is magic. And whereas the goddesses can kind of just will magic into existence, um, they limited mortals' ability to use it, you know, because they're, they don't have infinite capacity and infinite understanding, so they don't want them to destroy themselves. So instead of just being able to do anything, they give them certain sigils and incantations that they can use to limit what magics they have available to them. And the problem with uh, magic is that because of the wellsprings, depending on your proximity to them, uh, magic can be kind of hazardous to use. So if you're living in a city that's like right next to one of the wellsprings, Casting magic can have weird consequences. It could do something completely unrelated to what you had planned to do with it, or it could blow up in your face, literally. So um a lot of the cities that are see heavy magic use tend to be far away from the wellsprings. And um another thing is that the reason the wellsprings erupt is because they kind of build up magical energy over time and then they just Kind of have to release it, uh, like pressure building up in a valve. Okay. And so, one of the ways that the goddesses try to mitig- mitigate this is there are beings on a Laura called Wellspring Touched, which every like hundred years or so, they pick one individual to bless with the power of the Wellsprings. And so, that's kind of like my settings version of Wild Magic Sorcerers. And instead of a wild magic surge table, I created my own custom wellspring table that they roll on.
0: Is there like and, one for each of the different wellsprings?
1: Um, you know, I haven't thought about that. I might create different ones, but that, that it took long enough to create the first one. So
0: yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But
1: <laughs> so that is a good idea. So I will put that in my back pocket. Um, so The Wellspring Touched, they kind of what they do for the goddesses is they can channel the power in the same way the goddesses can, and that they can will it into existence. But because they're mortal, they don't really have good control over it, so they occasionally will lose control over that power, hence the surges. But Uh when the Wellspring Touched use their magic, they kind of mitigate the building up of. Pressure in local wellsprings Oh, okay. So they can prevent natural disasters by using their magic. And another way That's that magic is different in Aelora is that there's no resurrection—resurrection resurrection magic available. Besides the, well, for D and D at least, uh, the only resurrection spell available is Revivify. Mm-hmm. So once you're dead, you're gone. You know, the goddesses will not grant this magic to anyone for any reason. And, you know, anyone who tries to bring someone back from the dead, Estrella herself is going to rain fire down on you.
0: Okay. Uh, So so does this, is there an afterlife in your world? Like, what's the the outer cosmology like?
1: Yeah, so as far as the afterlife, uh, each goddess has their own realm that they will bring their children, too. So, you know, Astix has her own realm for the Asimar, But, you know, it's it's not something where you're restricted to only go to the realm of your patron goddess. Uh, it's more... You can choose which realm to go to when you die. But those who have committed great atrocities or kind of, you know, done things which are in direct violation of the goddess's values you end up being sent to what's called the Vortex, which is like this settings version of Hell, in okay. which you're basically just put in a giant magical vortex where you swirl around and you are in constant pain, uh, reliving basically... It, it's almost like what Ghost Rider does in Marvel to his victims where he kind of makes you live the guilt of the pain you caused to others.
0: Right. And to call it like the penitent stare. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I get that.
1: Yeah. So it's not a terribly original, uh, you know, choice of afterlife, but, um, it's also not one of the things that I've put much development into. So.
0: Okay. Um, I had a few other questions about your, your cosmology. So you said it's like a void, so there's just like the the Earth and the Sun, and yeah. that's it?
1: So there's Elora, there's the Sun that it circles around, there's the three moons of Elora, and then there's the three other planets in the system. And the only one okay. that I've given a name to currently is Proxon, which is where the dragonborn kobolds lizard folk and yuan t come from okay and you'll notice they all kind of follow a draconic theme and that's because there is a dragon god who is you know in presence on that planet who is who was created by uh the goddess of life okay and So he is the goddess of, or rather, he is the god of protection. He's actually a dragon himself. He's um, the only dragon in my entire setting.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, so no dragons.
1: There's a lot of other monsters that I just don't have in my setting just because I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to just remove classic tropes just for the sake of being different, but there are just, you know, a lot of, things that are taken for granted in Dungeons & Dragons that I just feel like are a little overdone. And I feel like a lot of settings go very heavy on dragons. And, you know, yes. so that was one of the things that I wanted to limit in the setting, not completely remove.
0: So you're over here playing Dungeons & Dragon.
1: Yeah, <laughs> basically.
0: All right. Um, so you haven't really thought about the other two planets yet? or. Do each of them have different gods?
1: So, yeah, that's one of the things that I'm working on. There is another planet that I'm working on that I'm thinking will probably host um, Aarakocra and Kenku. Okay. So, Uh, bird-related. I haven't really thought about the, you know, kind of origin of the life on that planet, though. And then the fourth one, I have no idea. I'll have to think about it. But
0: um, um, I think there's a couple of different races that are like things. Like there's a a race of like you know dryads, but like woodkin I think where it's more tree like. Um, and in fourth edition there was the shard mind uh, ones where they were like rocks. Yeah, that could work.
1: Um,
0: so that, kind that's kind of like, another, an, like...
1: Elemental pl- uh, an elemental, elemental planet.
0: Yeah, and you could throw in genasi if you want um, and just theme them a little different, you know? So instead of it like a water genasi is like a person that's just kind of wet, instead it's like it's an actual person made out of water. Basically, it's just
1: a human who's constantly walking around looking like he just got out of the pool. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, yeah, that's definitely something I uh, I will eventually think about just, you know, with considering the current location of the campaign where they still haven't ventured out the starting town, even though they're level uh, nine now, you know, it's not really something that I've needed to give a lot of thought to, but I have been thinking about it in the background.
0: Right. Yeah. You want to, you want to put your energy in a place that um, is going to be useful.
1: Yeah. And um, another one of the things that I developed recent was recently was I kind of started using numerology in ALORA where, you know, there's the seven sisters and I started thinking, well, seven should have a lot of prevalence in their culture. And so I developed a custom calendar for ALORA where you have seven months out of the year where each month has seven weeks with seven days. And each day has um, four quarters of seven hours. So it's 28 hour days. So I haven't worked out that. So it's a it's slightly less days than our year. But because of the extra hours, I haven't worked out um, the actual number of hours that would come out to be in the year. But it would probably be very similar to our year, just all sevens.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm doing the math real quickly. Okay, yeah, it's a bit more than a, a standard Earth hour of per year, but it's pretty close.
1: Yeah. So okay, that's pretty each cool. each month of that calendar year represents a certain uh, goddess in the Seven Sisters pantheon. Oh, and, of course. You know, it's kind of loosely named after the goddesses, like the month of Lise is Liston and then uh like the month of a- astix is aston and so they kind of all have that en suffix at the end
0: okay yeah that's yeah that's a that's a good naming device
1: and then based on the goddess's domain it determines what season they are within so it doesn't follow the same order that that they kind of take take in the you know, divine order instead, you know, it's based on what season makes sense for their domain. So like Estrella, the goddess of death, I consider her the end of the year and she represents winter. All right. Whereas the goddess of life Lise, she, you know, she is very close to Estrella. They are kind of two opposite sides of the same coin. And so she is the beginning of spring, the renewing of life. And so, you know, I I tried my best to fit them all in following that same theme. And eventually you get to the end of the, uh, or rather the middle of summer where Astex, Aston is like the hottest point of summer because, you know, that's when the sun would be the most intense. Ah, of course. So <clears throat> still working on, you know, thinking of... You know, unique anomalies that I can add to the world. There are a few that I mentioned when I, you know, filled out the little questionnaire. Um, like the Still Sea, which is a region of the ocean that's completely calm, you know, no waves. And then obviously yeah. there's Mir, which is constantly spring. And now there's the half elves. And then I had toyed with the idea of there being a floating island that would be home to the Asimar.
0: Okay, closer to the sky.
1: Yeah, but uh, still thinking about that one.
0: Okay. Um, So it seems like with like the races being associated with goddesses, you'd also have um, like any racial tension would also be effectively religious tension as well, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't really delved too much of that into that in the campaign, but that would definitely cause some tension in between different orders. Like the practitioners of the uh, of Lise and Astraea, even though Lise and Astraea are two different sides of the same coin, and they, as goddesses, are very close to each other. They're people who practice the religion of those two goddesses. They see each other as almost enemies. You know, they're not openly hostile to the point of war, but, you know, they are, you know, constantly sneering at each other, and they, they're they basically Democrats versus Republicans,
0: mm, where
1: yeah, they yeah. don't agree with each other, and...
0: You're doing it wrong.
1: Yeah, basically. And um, I haven't really, you know, d- d- thought about w- which goddesses would clash with the others, but... Um, Probably, you know, practitioners of Aztecs would disagree with uh, practitioners of the religious of Umos. Because, uh, you know, goddess of justice and order and goddess of trickery and deceit.
0: Not a lot of common ground. Yeah. I had another question about the races, because you mentioned the, the seven, like Playable races, but you seem to still have the the non-player races with orcs and goblins. Did right those come right. from other planets, like you mentioned the the reptile so, planet?
1: No, those were actually directly created by Amir. He puts them on Alora as a because he wants to destroy uh, their creation in any way possible. So he puts them there to torment the creations of the Seven Sisters.
0: Okay, this is the, the void god you were talking about before, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: And there is one other god who has not been named in the campaign yet, and uh, but he is the son of Emir, and his name is Maven. He's the goddess, or rather, he's the god of hatred and poison. Okay. And so he's another player in the background there. And so all, I, I've named all the gods that I have, you know, directly built at this point. But um, so all of the monstrous races on Elora directly come from Amir. And that's why, you know, whereas in other settings like Forgotten Realms, there's some ambiguity as to whether or not the monstrous races are, you know, completely evil or if there are some that are good. Like there was that one goblin in the Dritz novels who was kind of like a, a good character, and there was obviously the uh, Deep Gnomes. Well,
0: Drizzt and, himself. In the yeah, novels. Drizzt himself.
1: But um, all the monstrous races on Allura are unequivocally evil.
0: Okay, because uh, they're made by, effectively, the devil, so... Yeah, basically. Yeah, all right, it's... Got some sense to it. They're, they're basically like miniature demons with how you have the, the cosmic monsters.
1: Yeah. And the Void Spawn, you know, I, I'm trying to make them as terrifying as possible, but also, you know, I, I don't want them to be like a major factor because if the Seven Sisters are doing their job, they shouldn't show up on a Laura that often. Right. So I'm trying to think of, you know, plot points I can insert, like maybe... Something causes uh, you know a, a goddess or two to be distracted, and as a result, you know several void spawn attack at once.
0: Well, maybe they have to deal with something on one of the other planets, yeah, that's a big enough reason,
1: yeah, so there's still a lot left to be done with the world building, but you know this is one of those things where every day I'm at work, I have a little, a note document open. Where yep. I just write down anything I can think of while I'm working,
0: yep, yep. I do it while I'm driving, so it's a little harder to take notes, but at least <laughs> I have time to brainstorm. You get a
1: little uh recorder just writing uh, speaking out notes to yourself
0: I, <laughs> I get home and then I write I write all the notes down <laughs> before I go inside,
1: yeah, I just but the way my memory works, I'd forget it by the time I get home. I have to write it down as soon as it occurs to me, you know?
0: Man, sometimes there's some, like, I'll think of something and then I'll forget to write it down. And then my next drive, I'll think of it again and then I'll forget to write it down. And it's, like, the fifth time. So I'll think of something and then, like, three weeks later, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Now, I actually remember it so now I can write it down. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's the problem is that my memory is very focused on things like numbers and sequences. So I can remember a password for years without ever writing it down. But ask me to remember something that I thought about five minutes ago and I'm just drawing a blank.
0: Yeah, But different. Uh, So we talked a lot about your campaign um, world. I wanted to talk about your actual campaign as well. So you said that the players are... Still in like the starting town after a long time,
1: yeah. And I, I'd say the majority of that is my fault, you know, because although the players haven't really expressed much interest in going beyond the starting town, I think that's because several of them are really, se- several of them, while they're not just looking for a, a kind of monster of the week type thing, I think I feel like they enjoy more the um being directly driven to the next plot point. Mm. And so I haven't at this point really expanded much beyond the main starting town of Eldon. But um, they did recently, not too long ago, they liberated a decrepit, abandoned military fort called Fort Eldon. Basically, goblins had taken over it after it was abandoned uh, decades ago because of a hill giant attack and they drove out the goblins and then they reappropriated it, rebuilt it. And then they used it as a safe haven for the humans who had to evacuate from Eldham because of all the human elven racial tension. Okay. And so the campaign started out, uh, where the players didn't know each other at all. Um, this, I, I was pretty proud of the way that I started the campaign because it wasn't one of those, you know, typical you start in a tavern, you, you all know each other. Uh, the way that I did my campaign is the very first thing that I said to the players was roll a constitution save. And <laughs> basically it was to see whether or not they wake up. And the ones that did, they found themselves all bound and gagged in a cave. And... The only one who didn't make his save, the dwarf artificer, was just snoring away while the rest of them were trying to slip their bonds. And they found that they had been attacked by goblins on the road and had been taken captive. And they were rescued by a group called the Emerald Company, which is a group that specifically hunts goblins because goblins are a very big problem in Iraq. And so from there it slowly reached the point where they realized that the goblins were being led by an elven illusionist named Adamar. And basically, his wife was killed in the human riots centuries ago, so he's got a deep hatred for humans, and he's doing everything he can to eradicate them.
0: Centuries and, ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's
1: he wasn't really that... That powerful at the beginning. So he's been kind of doing a, a lot of his research, and he actually developed a goblin mutagen that he's been using to create goblin variants. So you know that's kind of my monster of the week where I create a new goblin variant. and I think the very first goblin variant that I came out with was the firebrand goblins where they were literally just red goblins that could breathe fire, okay. and I've come out with so many different Goblin variants at this point that I've forgotten a lot of them. But that's, you know, why I have D&D Beyond, where I can go and see all of the ones that I've created.
0: Right. There's there's a bunch in the Forgotten Realms. Um, I think there was like 10 or 15 different variants.
1: Yeah. just I find that not a whole lot of them are... All that different from the normal ones, I like, would I definitely have,
0: agree with that. Yeah,
1: I have one called the Goblin Abomination, which is literally like a patchwork goblin that's a bunch of goblins stitched together in this disfigured, hulking monstrosity that's nice. gargantuan sized. And it literally is just this ugly thing with a metal faceplate and a giant sword arm. That it was basically a siege monster that attacked. That attacked them at the uh, Fort Eldon.
0: That was a goblin.
1: Yeah, uh, technically, he was goblinoid in in his origin.
0: Okay, that sounds more like a, a giant. But
1: <laughs> yeah, because he was he he was created by some magical nonsense that R used. You know, he had that goblin mutagen that he used to that he's used to create so many different variants, and he's kind of he's almost missing messing with their DNA,
0: Uh-huh.
1: and um, yeah, I've had also another giant type, Bugbear Behemoth, which was basically just a giant version of a Bugbear.
0: Right. So how are you creating these monsters? Are you doing custom, or are you doing, like, just using oh, yeah, giant stats? Custom. Okay.
1: I mean, I definitely look at other monsters for reference, because, you know, a lot of it, it, it I don't look at them necessarily... To just copy them but i need you know a kind of a reference point because otherwise i don't really know how to balance them that well yeah of course because especially in fifth edition the cr system just does not make sense
0: it is a bit harder with the uh, the bounded accuracy to make sure that you're hitting the the numbers right
1: yeah and then uh so The first chapter of the campaign, they were just trying to track Anamar down, and they eventually did, and they thought they killed him, but it turns out, so they were shocked to learn that at level three, they were fighting someone who not only used Disintegrate on one of their allies, but also after they killed him, he turned into snow and then melted, so they realized he could also cast Simulacrum.
0: Oh, and still cast Disintegrate.
1: Yeah, so he was basically just toying with them. And the second chapter dealt with them uh, dealing with a plague of um, people who were being mind-controlled. And in in Iraq, especially, enchantment magic is expressly forbidden. It is extremely uh, illegal. And it's not even just like a, you know, because it's morally wrong. But if you think about the. So each goddess in the setting, they kind of espouse a certain school of magic. And the school of magic. Uh, so enchantment is associated with Lacaris. Okay. Lacaris is the human goddess. So why do you think that there's such a deep hatred of enchantment magic?
0: Well, it's also the. I mean, I get that, though. Yeah. That's a losing control of yourself it's pretty bad.
1: Yeah. And so the second part of the campaign they were dealing with a wizard who who was very proficient in enchantment magic and they found out he he was one of Adamar's lackeys and he was, you know, mind controlling people and there was even a point where he sent a a, a woman who was mind controlled to the party and had her, you know, detonate a a bomb that she was carrying, you know, trying to blast them away but she ended up just killing herself and um it ended with um and reese controlling a bunch of goblins and assaulting fort eldon and then the third chapter of the campaign dealt with um you know the the birth of the half elves and that inquisition was started by a um a an, an elven man named haldir who, he was just kind of a, a religious zealot, and he was directly connected to Amir and the Spawn, and he actually started, he, he had the ability to summon Spawn directly, and so he had one attack Fort Eldon, and then they had to find a way to, you know, track him down, because he was giving sermons right in the middle of Town Square in Eldon, but you know, he had a lot of political support and a lot of allies, so they couldn't just assault him directly. And eventually, they did manage to track down his base of operations. And they managed to kill him, or they, or rather, they thought so. Um, the way that I handled his death was that he kind of just kept getting back up after they thought they had killed him. And so he was kind of mocking them. And then in comes... Uh, spooky dude behind him who nobody noticed before. Uh, Just a dude in robes with a very dark face. Uh, And um, he just walks in and says a single word and and Haldir just drops dead. Uh, I don't know if anyone realized at the time we were doing the session, but he cast Power Word Kill on him.
0: Uh, Oh, okay.
1: So yeah, the party's way out of their element right now. And the problem that they're currently facing, which they actually haven't gotten to this point yet, because um, it's it's still coming in a few sessions. But basically, he's a necromancer who is a he's a conduit of Emir, where he's using Amir's power directly to create undead, and he's going to create a mass undead outbreak that's going to like put the city on lockdown. And they're going to be fighting for their lives. Basically, it's going to be everyone for themselves, and uh, they're going to have to—you know—they're not going to be able to take on all these undead themselves. So they're going to have to, you know, go to other cities looking for help.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've done i I've done a similar campaign arc like that, and um, cool. I liked it.
1: Where they currently are, the catacombs that I mentioned of the ancient dwarven civilization, they're going to encounter one of the lesser gods. Who he's? Um, I've only created three warlock patrons at this point. Um, there is one of the void spawn, Drixier, who is, you know, a void spawn himself, who's kind of like their general almost, and um, he can act as like an evil warlock patron. There is a a um, patron called Moria, who is like kind of like a harpy god uh, harpy god who is actually from Proxon. And she's kind of ambiguous on her moral standing. But then there okay. is a third Warlock patron named Oryk who is he was a human, like over ten thousand years ago. And he was one of the very first liches. And he was a devout follower of Estrella. And he became a lich so that he could serve her. Um, and it's not really a great relationship between them because, like I said, she despises undead. Of course. So Auric is the good-aligned war- warlock patron and they're going to encounter him in the catacombs and he's basically going to introduce himself basically he's he's going to talk almost like a scholar and not he's not going to be hostile in any way he's just going to kind of be like a funny little encounter and i'm trying to tie him into the story somehow i haven't quite figured out exactly how he's going to play into things but You know, the players have to find some way of dealing with this uh, extremely high-level necromancer, so I'm thinking that he might play a part in that for a price. Of course. But yeah, that's where the campaign currently is. Okay.
0: Did you have anything else that you wanted to to add to what we've been talking about?
1: Uh, I mean, the only other thing that I, I... didn't mention was uh, no psionic magic. Hate psionic magic. I don't know why. Ah, I'm just not a fan of it.
0: That's pretty common. I wouldn't say that's, um, that's not even worth mentioning.
1: <laughs> in fact, all magic in my setting, including divine magic, is arcane in origin. It all comes from the aura, which is that magic force that kind of drives the universe. Okay. So um, even though... Divine Magic like from Clarks and paladins comes from the gods, it's just them granting them limited access to Archean magic. Just of a different origin and a different nature.
0: It's like uh, filtered.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think very few campaigns actually care about the difference between arcane and Divine Magic from what I've seen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, having them be the actual same is kind of neat, but, yeah, I I don't think there's any real difference in how the campaign treats it is what it sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I think I covered pretty much everything, everything important anyway.
0: Okay. Do you have any advice you want to give to other DMs?
1: As, As far as advice for preparation, um, You know, I find that I over-prepare a lot. Um, Just focus on what's immediately important. Don't try to plan too much for the future like I do. Because you're going to put a lot of work on yourself, and it's just going to stress you out. Just focus on what's important in the next session. There's this book that I got for Christmas last year called The Lazy Dungeon Master's Guide, which uh, basically... (laughs) gives you a bullet point list of things that you should have prepared prepared for each session, and you should stick to that bullet list. Don't try to plan too much beyond that. Like, you should have a rough idea of where things are going, but don't plan so specifically for the future that when things go and get derailed, that you have no idea what to do. So, you know, just have a good master list of plot hooks that make sense in your world, and then just prepare for the very next session and, you know, be prepared to improvise.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, yeah, I think it It sounds like your world started from a, a top-down building perspective. And sometimes a bottom-up yeah. is a bit easier.
1: Because this is the very first world that I've ever created. I had no idea where to start. And I bought so many books that I've only partially read on how to actually do this. But I will say that if you're doing the world-building aspect of DMing, Uh, One tool that was really helpful for me was World Anvil.
0: I don't think I'm familiar with that one.
1: It's a website that lets you create like a wiki style uh, collection of articles about your world. And they have a whole lot of other tools too that I've found that are really useful. Um, You don't have to pay for it, but you know, like the free version only gives you like 10 articles. So it's not really worth it if you're doing the free version. But Mm. um, 50 bucks a year is really cheap as far as I'm
0: concerned. That's cool. Did you use that to make the map?
1: Yeah. Or, well, no, the map itself I created in Wonderdraft, But you can import it into World Anvil, and they have tools where you can do things like placing um, map markers where you can directly link to your articles. So you can Uh, place a map marker that has a direct link to the article about that point of interest. And you can also create your own timeline and history and stuff like that. There's a lot of really neat features.
0: Yeah. Image map linking like that is, uh, I've tried to do it on my own. It's very complicated to set that up. Having it be a, uh, user interface to do it is much easier. Yeah. I'm not
1: quite satisfied with the timeline tool that they have though. So I am a you know, in spite of all I've got going on in my life and you know, how many hobbies I have, I apparently like punishing myself because I'm creating my own app just. To keep track of the calendar in my campaign. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, oh my!
1: Because I find myself frequently forgetting about you know events that I had planned in the past, and you know they should have been resolved, but they never did. And so, I, you know, I'm creating an app where I can say, "Oh, the the players did this. It's going to have this effect five days from now." And as I you know keep track of the time in the game you know i advance time 5 days and it's going to give me a reminder saying that oh this is supposed to happen
0: well uh you know put it on the the app store with some adsense ads on it and the patreon link and you know now it's a now it's a side project instead of a yeah a weird time sync
1: yeah, I had, you know, I had just planned for it to be specific to my calendar, but if I can figure out an easy way to do it, I probably will generalize it so that you can make it as, you know, you can define your own format.
0: Okay. Because I imagine
1: a lot of people would find that very useful.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've got my system, but yeah, that, that does seem like it has some additional benefits with the... Um... My uh, my system for tracking past events is pretty good, but yeah, planning future events is uh, a bit of a mess.
1: Yeah, because as much as, you know, technology can be a bit of a distraction at a table, it can also be a huge benefit.
0: I just want to say one more thing. You mentioned World Anvil as being kind of like a wiki style. Yeah. Um, you can also just make your own wiki for stuff.
1: Yeah, just their their tool makes everything really simple, plus all the extra tools they give you are
0: really handy yes that uh yeah the the self-made wikis definitely don't have all that stuff all right uh anything else darren or are we good to to sign off here i think that covers everything all right well thanks for coming on the show
1: yeah i really enjoyed it i was looking forward to it all week excellent all right well it was nice talking to you
0: yeah you too thanks darren (laughs) take care you too